Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yep. Is that better? Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Stuart Kelly. I'm the literary editor of Scotland on Sunday. And it's a real pleasure to be here to introduce Shaolu Gu. Shaolu has three works available in English out of eight that she's written in Chinese. She was shortlisted for the IMPAC Award, the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize, and the, or and the Orange Prize for her first book in English, which was a concise Chinese-English dictionary for lovers. She'll be here to talk about, amongst other things, her new work, which is available for signing afterwards, 20 Fragments of a Ravenous Youth. As you'll know, she's also an acclaimed filmmaker and was here for the Edinburgh International Film Festival as well. What we're going to do is, Shelley's going to read for a little while a new work, which is as yet unpublished, so an exclusive there. We'll have a little chat and then it's over to you, so be thinking about questions. First of all, just join me in welcoming Shaolu Gu. Thanks. I remember last year I was here in the night, um, the same uh, place I was here. As soon as I start to read and the raindrops cover all my reading. <laughs> and it was romantic, but it wasn't good for my reading. So now it seems all right so far. Um, I'm going to read, because every year actually <clears throat> in the festival, I, I was reading the chapters from my novels. It might be interesting for the readers, but uh, I guess just like bore myself each time. <laughs> as you were writing some years for one book and you were editing for some years and then you were reading the same book. So um, recently I, <coughs> I started to write some short stories and essays and poems. And this uh, short essay I, I wrote originally was commissioned by a major UK newspaper and then they didn't want it. So they Is they it still available? <laughs> uh, I think, I think they're trying to get the alarm turned off at the moment. Hmm. We can wait, huh? We, we, we. I think carry on. So this essay, it was commissioned, supposed to publish for the Beijing Olympic in this English newspaper, but then in the eventually they said, oh God, this is out of our expectation. So I thought I may as well read tonight in Scotland, <laughs> not in England. <laughs> I was a bit angry when I got refused. Uh, the reason is this is out of the newspaper style. And I thought that's a compliment. <laughs> the title is called Letters to a City of Illusion and Hope. Um, I was born in this southern village in, in South China. And then when I was um, 17, can you hear me now? Yeah. So when I was 17, I left my, my uh, South province, went to Beijing. And I stayed in Beijing for 12 years. Um, the life in Beijing is, is quite crazy for me because I was born in very kind of peasant countryside where there's no much civilization or education or books available. So when I came to Beijing, was in this kind of art school. Everyday people talk about Jean-Paul Sartre or um, Oscar Wilde. And uh, those names, it's kind of a name-dropping art school. And for a peasant, young peasant like me, it was horrifying. So I, I spent 10 years in the art school trying to learn European, French filmmaking, um, if it's not socialist filmmaking. Anyway, so that's, <coughs> this is um, letters to that city. I have been living for 12 years. Letters to a city of illusion and hope. Letter one, letters to G. Perhaps you remember the winter of 1993, Beijing covered in Mongolia wind. 18 and I was 20. We were walking fast through the night over Jimen Bridge. People call that canal Xiaoyuehe, the little moon river. The water was still flowing then, though it was frozen. There was never a single fish in that canal, neither a boat at any season. Near the concrete river bank was a small pine tree wood 
from which young art school lovers appeared, holding hands or secret kissing. No room for lovebirds to hide in Beijing, except for the woods at the night. You were speaking about 1960s Paris. Ah, how much interesting nonsense we learned in that film school library. The library, perhaps the only place in Beijing where censorship on Western art doesn't apply. You were talking about Jean Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Of course, there was no stopping you to talking about them. You so much lived in another time and another world, a world where men resembled the young Sartre and a woman the young de Beauvoir. Even if you could afford only two packs of instant noodles every day, the library was for free. Yes, we were living through then ruthless sandy wind of Beijing. We were orphans of our country's history, born during the Cultural Revolution. All we were taught was that history equals feudalism. Therefore, history had to die. Letter two. Letters to H. I was going to visit you last time when I was in Beijing, but then they told me the foot massage parlor you worked, it was being refurbished, and I didn't think you were still working there. I was a customer you always saw around in the midnight. Yes, I was the one wore a pair of oily glasses, and sometimes I felt asleep while you were massaging me. I was the one arguing with you that you shouldn't do this job; you should study in the college, because you were the cleverest boy in that foot massage place. I couldn't believe you. When you told me that your whole village left to large cities to work in the massage business, how many people were there in your village? Three thousand or thirty thousand? You said Henan is the most populated province in China. At least one hundred million people there. I imagined thousands of young Henan villagers leaving their homes to work on some city people's feet. Yes, everyone came to Beijing or Shanghai to press some tired feet, day and night. So many feet. Maybe you remember those feet. Certainly, not their faces. You were seventeen. You told me that you would like to be an actor, that you were good at martial arts, that you would like to learn your job and acting in a TV series. So I gave you a phone number. For a film studio, and then I told you to call them, and then I never saw you again. Letter three. Letter to S. Nineteen ninety-six. People were still talking about a legendary UFO that appeared in the Beijing sky one year before. You were writing George Louis Borges' style novel. And I was trying to write TV soaps for a living. We stole a few cabbages in the hutongs. You borrowed some money to buy cigarettes. We went through the cruel story of youth. Oh, is it the title of Nagasa Oshima's film? Yes, cruel story of youth, 1960s desperation in Japan. Then one day. You took me to a dim jazz cafe near Udaoko. The cafe is called Lush Life, right next to Beijing Language College. You said they play the best jazz in town. Some black American musicians were blowing the saxophone on stage, and there was only the, the two of us to listen. I think that was the first time I have seen a black American jazz musician in my life. Why would they come to Beijing? Didn't they find life tough or lonely here? You couldn't answer me. After that day, you told me, "I'm a man. I have got to make my life happen. So I have to leave you." Then you disappeared, along with the jazz cafe, and they started to demolish all the CD streets of Udaoko, the ones that sold the cheapest chili paste. And the Korean food.
Our favorite was pickled catfish. It's all gone. Letter four. Letter to A. You were beautiful. We liked the same kind of music. We liked Miles Davis and Pink Floyd. We loved Eileen Chang's novels too. You were the girl everyone thought was my younger sister. You left Shandong, your hometown, and Confucius' birthplace too. You came to Beijing to sing. You sang Hong Kong or Taiwan pop songs, the songs like "Goodbye, My Lover" by Deng Liying and such stuff. That was the legacy of the 1980s. At that point, China was still imitating Taiwan. You sang some propaganda songs too, in a Beijing troupe, some sort of army dancing troupe. You had a handsome boyfriend. He was a Beijingese, and he was an actor. You stayed at his place, an old Hutong house nearby Dongcheng train station. Each time a train departed to the province, you heard the horns and the bells. Then I came to see you. I came to your little home without windows. We ate lamb hot pot and bai chai. The house was decayed. I noticed the cement was stained by rain, covered with a huge piece of flowery cloth, lilies on the wall. Those lilies were silver color, and your room was a house of the gray stone lilies. Then you came to find me at my art school dormitory. In my dormitory room, eight people sleep together with bunk beds. A tall chimney vomiting its black smoke out of our windows, and you came in, one hand carrying some duck meat, the other hand holding a book. The title was "Existentialism Opposed to Marxism?" Question mark. It had been written by a Harvard scholar, or was he from Berkeley or Oxford? I don't know. I asked. Do you understand what's written in there? You said, "Yes, I have to." You wanted to change your life. You saw that being a little singer in a troupe was leading to a future without hope. You wanted to go abroad, anywhere in America, no matter where it was—in Wisconsin or Oregon or Kentucky. We were discussing Max Weber, a German supposed to be a new Marxist. Well, we were still discussing neo-Marxism in our school at that time, unless we had already started to talk about how to get MBA diploma. Then we went to listen to some Beijing punk bands in the dark bar. Cui Jian was singing rock and roll on a new long march. There were teenagers bands too, and you were their favorite punk girl under the stages. You dyed your hair red. You wore shining trousers with elegant elef- elephant feet. Was that Elvis Presley style, or Hong Kong second-hand imitation? Then one day you wrote to me, "Hey, I'm married. I'm in Copenhagen, and I miss Beijing." Letter five. Letter to W. I wanted to send you the photos of that well. The well inside the Forbidden City, the well in which the emperor's favorite concubine got drowned by the emperor's own mother, Cixi. I suppose you still remember the trip we made to the Forbidden City. It felt like there are no museum in the world could be as empty as this one. Okay, it wasn't entirely empty, but then every gallery was locked. Where are all the treasures? I asked. You said, "Oh, probably it all went to Taiwan, to Taipei Forbidden Palace, or to British Museum, where they bought all the jade, the Buddhas, and the chairs on which emperors have sat once, or have sat for all their lives." Like any other tourists from the Chinese province, we took photos in front of that famous well, the Zhengfei Well. Its water seemed bottomless. It scared me.
that story about Emperor Cixi and the mother, Pearl concubine Zhengfei killed by his mother, was depressing. Wind back to the 1900. That's the year the eight nations' aliens, the armies of Britain, the USA, France, German, Russian, and more, entered China, menaced by the foreigners. That was the year the Empress Dowager Cixi had to escape from Beijing with all her eunuchs. The city got occupied by the invaders. The houses were burned down. Emperor Guangxi loved his unofficial concubine, Zheng Fei. Against against his mother's will, when Cixi had to flee the capital, she left the emperor behind to negotiate with the invaders. But first, Cixi got Zheng Fei drowned in the well. The girl died. Maybe historical, it wasn't in this exact well. Maybe it was somewhere else, perhaps not even in the Forbidden City. But that doesn't matter, for those confused Chinese tourists who lost all trace of history in the Cultural Revolution. What matters is, a beautiful concubine got drowned in the well for love, for her master, or for the sake of making history roll on like a tape recorder. Now. Contemplating those photos, I want to ask you to visit that place again, to check whether the well is still there, or has it been moved to make place for Starbucks Cafe. I used to be in the north. It used to be in the north of the Forbidden City, just behind Nishu Palace. I hope its water has not been dried up. Letter six. Letter to M. I was waiting for you at the Beijing airport, in the middle of the night. We rode a taxi with your red suitcase behind us. You gazed at the poplar trees standing straight on the sides of the highway, silence in the Beijing darkness. Obedient forest, you commented. Obedient forest? Is that how you thought of Beijing? Did you mean the obedience of its citizen or its government? Surely not the latter one, as far as I was concerned. In your red suitcase, you had brought me an art book novel called *Grimfing and Sabine*. I had never seen a foreign book before, let alone a novel with real envelopes and postcards in that, and you had to read to follow the story. It may have been a love story, but for me, it was my first adult children book, and I had never read any children book in my life at that time. The year was two thousand one. Beijing was enduring the construction of those crazy new ring roads. I just left art college, and I started to teach in another college. Since then. I have often thought of Grimfing and Sabina's male love, a man in London writing postcards to a mysterious island in the South Pacific, where a woman lives. Where in the South Pacific could that island be? In my tower block apartment, invaded by the cockroach, I was standing on my bed, staring at a world map glued on the wall. Did they mean Fiji? Or Samoa, or Nauru, or that Solomon Islands. Is there any great mysterious island left in this world anyway? Then I slowly became like the man in Griffin and Sabine, so lonely. He has to invent his distant woman. All I did in Beijing in those days was just sitting in my bedroom, scribing in my diaries. The construction workers carried on building the fourth ring road, then the fifth ring road, all of them circling around the Forbidden City, but none of them leading to it. That is Beijing, a power station which doesn't have an entrance to the central room. When spring came, the cherry blossoms in Chaoyang Park opened. 
and I was reading about a successful lifestyle in newspapers, cars, mortgages, a collective middle-class dream. I did become Grimfing, and Sabina became me. A year later, I left Beijing. I got to London. Now I'm in this windy island, far away from all the continents in the world. I'm in the bedroom, where I can see maple trees standing in London fields, covered with heavy raining clouds. Here, there also is a world map, pinned on the wall. Before I finish this letter to you, I have to stand up and look at the map. I want to find that city again, a city full of the hopes and the illusions of our youth. Thanks. You're here to talk about 20 Fragments of a Ravenous Youth, which is your latest novel as far as English readers are concerned, but it's your first novel in terms of how you wrote them, and it was the first Chinese novel. Yeah. Was it strange going back to that first book? It is, actually. Um, I wrote when I was really young, like 19, which I didn't know how to write a story. Um, I think when you were young, you, you intend to write about the youth, or your youth, or your childhood, or your family, which I think was kind of a common kind of experience for lots of writers. And uh, at that time, I had a kind of strong rubble emotion, but I didn't know how to shape a character. So the so original Chinese text has no punctuation. It's, it's, a, long, it's, a, it's a long piece of just one, one monologue. And so it was hell to translate. <laughs> and I guess that's why 15 years later this book can be published. <laughs> so during these 15 years, I was just, uh, I wrote really several books and I made several films and I, I left China and I went back. And it was crazy 15 years. I, I wandered around in the world, tried to see what I can do in this world. So that, that's, I think, that's why I think I rewrite that book too. Yeah, I mean, you, you say in a very eloquent end, end note to the whole book that you, you actually disliked the girl, the original girl, when you reread it. Could you talk a bit more about that? I mean, mm. um, I think it's, it's a really complex um, translation and rewriting because there was no punctuation and no mm -hmm. chapters. So I had these two translators completely lost for three or four years, couldn't really find out how to do it. And then I, re I read bits of the translation while my English wasn't really great to really check um, if, if it's the right tone. And I read some pieces um, two years ago and I didn't like, I didn't like, I, I wasn't sure if, if it's Fen Fang as a character or me as a writer. Oh, there's a problem with translation. So I said, okay, give me all the translated bits and bobs and they just give to me and I rewrite, even with more, my broken English, I just rewrite the whole thing with punctuation. And that was a process, so I, 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 I got back all the messy pieces mm -hmm. and rewrote. And I think during the rewriting, I was kind of convincing a young author when she was 19, was completely rubble and, and a bit punk, was completely angry with the society. I was kind of convincing her to be more tolerant or more kind of generous towards the society. So it was a battle between me and me, or Fen and me. And that was a really interesting process because I confront a young author which didn't know how to write a book before. But on the other hand, I need to confront the danger, how to not smoothen it, to make it more mature you know, in the, in the, in the bad sense. So I was trying to find a balance to keep this rawness and the swearing, all this kind of very first degree kind of childish language. Mm -hmm. So that was very interesting for me to learn how to write in English as well. So did you do that after you'd written the concise Chinese-English Dictionary yeah. for Lovers? So, yes. Which is a book very much about translation. It's, it's the only book you've done in English so far, and you almost capitalised on the process of learning English to structure that book. Mm. Well, the feelings, <laughs> because I was rewriting this translation, 
after the Constance Chinese English Dictionary for Lovers. So I thought, shit, now I cannot, I cannot write in broken English again. <laughs> and the, the, the trick was done, and I have to write in, in the beautiful English, but I couldn't, how could I? And so it was weird because I only had four years English life experience, and the before was complete Chinese vocabularies and con concepts in Chinese way. So it was, it was crazy try to write in, in English, although now I speak English, it seems like all right, but, but for Indeed. a writer, I think you, re you really have ambitious to master the language, which people don't really know which language you're using. So it doesn't matter which language you're using, it's the book itself has to sound right. And that was the process I went through to try to write in good English. And I, for me, it, you know, there's no difference, good English or bad English, it's just your English. <laughs> <laughs> and the next book will be in Chinese or in English? Um, I just finished the next bits in English. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote the Chinese long story first as a, as a detail and a story based. Um, it's called the UFO in her eyes. <laughs> and it's, you will see, I think it's coming out in January, next January. Um, but that, that, that's also a, 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 the first thing I confront is language because the story based in a particular southern China landscape mm -hmm. where Chiang Mao was, was born and this kind of very poor village. So everybody's peasant. And in order to create a, a kind of English which agreeable for, for, my, for my degree, I created a kind of police, really banal police language. So the police typing form, which without language, <laughs> but with really raw police kind of vocabularies. And I think that's really, I think, is one way of um, to shaping your own language rather than follow certain kind of Shakespeare or whatever, you know, those kind of languages you can't. So which writers did you read in translation when you were in Beijing? Um, I read, uh, when I was in China, I read lots of French translation, American translation. Um, um, of course, um, J.D. Salinger was the early one. And I read uh, Sylvia Plath, and I read uh, Frank O'Hara. All right. Yep. And I think I, I said uh, I think I said many times I was reading some of the French literature trans in translation. For example, some chapters from Proust in Chinese translation, and it was so on the page one is a, a piece of Madeleine on the table, and the man couldn't sleep. And in Chinese translations, I couldn't sleep because a cup of tea on the table <laughs> called Madeleine. <laughs> And then that was like, I read, I think, oh, I have to drink that Madeleine cup of tea when, I, <laughs> when I'm in France. And then five years ago, I came to France, the first time in my life, and I wanted that Madeleine tea, and they would give me some cakes. <laughs> and I thought that was the, 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 the knowledge I learned from the translation, which completely <coughs> wrong. It was so wrong, you couldn't really click. You know, that was a great influence you had in your life. Um, but but that, that was, I think, just like the whole the culture misreading and the, the mystery you, you build in a country wasn't opened. Mm -hmm. And I think the eager and the desperation, you wanted to learn so much and you want to see the world so much build up in, in your early life, which I thought is, is quite positive for you later on to rediscover the world. Perhaps they could translate it back from the Chinese translation. Completely, you know, into, and it's another Proust. Uh, yeah. <laughs> some socialist, working class Proust. <laughs> of course, you're also a filmmaker as well. Um, how do you balance those two? Mm. I found I as a writer, it's a really um, isolated job. And uh, because I, I grew up in this village, there's no other way you know, to entertaining. We, we, we didn't have radio or TV or books. And the only thing is if I learned how to write, I would write diary or poem. But then that means the life is being cut to communicate with, with real people, but life is only remained in your head. So I had, I had that life for, for really long, since I was 14 or something. So I was carried on writing things. So for the last 20 years, I was writing. And I, I found a, a certain kind of illness or disease in the kind of young intellectual's life is because society has evolved so much and it's so messy mm -hmm. and there's a political events everywhere, 
which been discussed so much in the media. But I think as, as a young intellectual, I found it quite ailed. You cut, you cut away from the reality, or so-called reality, and you think you're academic, right? And I found that's really unhealthy. So, so for the last five years, I started to make more documentary films, and I think that's, that's a strong form to put me, or force me, confront documentary people, or, or real people, or society, to confront them, to, to face them. And then in order to learn back, or they feed me back mm -hmm. from filmmaking, really. Because the same themes go through the films as well as the, the novels. And certainly your, your last film, We Went to Wonderland, with these two Chinese characters set adrift in the East End of London, is very similar to how you set Zed adrift in concise Chinese-English Dictionary for Lovers. It's a theme right the way through your work, sort of mm. showing us a completely new perspective on Britain and life in Britain through using these eyes of other characters mm. with completely different preconceptions and belief systems. I was, I was kind of upset with the general Chinese literature being introduced to the West or general kind of Western propaganda or even Chinese propaganda. It's a double way of propaganda stories being read in the media and I thought it was so boring those stories either you know either very kind of nationalism story or historical story being badly translated, which you don't really get any sense of what's about. So I, I wanted to somehow establish a kind of story without too much lingering around your national identity, you know, being a Chinese or how to be a Chinese, those kind of bullshit. And I wanted to really write about small, sad, melancholy individuals for example, in the film We Want to Wonderland, these two very old Chinese communists get lost in the West because they couldn't really recognize what's in the West in their head mm -hmm. when they were in China. And also, I think a concise Chinese English dictionary for lovers is about a young, innocent peasant girl came to the West with all these kind of pumped ideologi ideologies from China and then tried to re establish her world through this encounter in the love story. But with 20 Fragments as well, um, I was trying to write a character, just get rid of this historical shadow, the shadow of, say, Cultural Revolution, the shadow mm -hmm. of Emperor, all this kind of so-called a thousand years of shadow, which is depressing, really, sometimes. Um, so I want to establish a kind of very, you know, a, a character try to born painfully in a naked society which really been cut cut from the historical event, actually, and we, mm. which I think China now is being cut from our past. And yet no, no character, no book is truly presenting this. Yeah, I mean, one thing that which is absolutely lovely about 20 Fragments of Ravenous Youth is that we see what she's reading in terms of the Western influences. You've mentioned Sartre and the, the whole French existentialist movement, but it's sort of counterpointed with traditional Chinese poetries, with Chinese novels. In terms of the Chinese novelistic tradition, how do you think that's different from the, mm. the European tradition of the novel? Mm. I think when I came to London um, from China, uh, I was discussing with some um, English intellectuals. They were saying novel is a new form, or novel was, or novel have, has been a new form in, mm -hmm. in the UK or in Britain. And I was really shocked that novel is a new form. But novel is the oldest form, isn't it? <coughs> and I think they were really kind of confused by what I said because I was thinking a novel form in the Chinese concept, the way we call novel little talk, xiaoshuo, mm -hmm. so small talk or little talk. And that was been really thousands of years of history. But novel in Chinese concept is kind of non-official version of the history or gossip in the streets or peasants gossip from the tea house. And that was always been kind of return or being sang in opera or return in a book as kind of folk mm -hmm. or tale or even ghost story. Um, and that was really an old tradition. And I think being a novelist in China is a really old-fashioned thing. Um, it was always, and I think I came here somehow, I, I caught the fashion, being a novelist. <laughs> <laughs> does always strike me as being surprising and melancholy that I can go into bookshops in Edinburgh and find almost any Greek or Latin work in translation. 
but the amount of Chinese literature we have in translation is mm. very, very small. Mm. Um, Pu Song Ling, The Story of the Stone, mm. Wu Cheng En. Do you think that, do you see more Chinese literature coming into it and, and what could we learn from that literature? Mm. I think it demands the, the really, you know, the, the quantity and the quality of the translators. Um, because I don't think this is two ways communication. I think, I think Japanese literature was better being introduced to the yeah. West than Chinese. Yeah. And I think Chinese literature and the Korean literature wasn't really greatly being introduced. And I think it's to do with the difficulty of Chinese as a language. The language itself is, is a profound difficulty for the West to study. And in order to be able to translate, you have to become a Chinese writer as well. And I think that's uh, beyond academic um, capacity because they also demand you a good artist to understand mm. the Chinese literature. And I think that is um, a huge difficulty. How I was always become a person like, oh please, you know, if you study Chinese, we're going to thank you so much, just for very you know selfish reasons, so you can translate my books. Um, <laughs> for example, although now I have this book being translated, but. But that's only my second book being translated. Out of eight, which is... Yeah, out yeah. of the eight. And I think all other books, especially my non-fiction books, I couldn't, I couldn't find a translator because uh, it's a very specific, I think, cultural genre, you know, when you write non-fiction, you use certain kind of academic language. And it demands much more of the sp specific knowledge. I couldn't really find translators. So I ended up translating my own work, which bores me to death. And I didn't want to repeat in a different language. <laughs> and all I want to do is like I try to learn French or German, but you know, all my life is dedicating to a circle and an echo in this Chinese-English translation. But I think that the, the, the Asian the Chinese novels, they were, they were so important for us, and they are still wonderful for us. And I don't know how really they can be somehow intelligently introduced. But I think it's coming. I think you know because I think I see more, most of people come here to listen. Maybe they have the knowledge or interest on Chinese culture. So there's hope, really. If there was, if there was one that you could translate yourself uh, from Chinese into English, contemporary or classic, what what would you choose? Classic, actually. Mm -hmm. Classic. I think. Any particular work? <coughs> I think I would like to translate those kind of. Um, in the middle century, you know, after Tang Dynasty, after mm -hmm. Song Dynasty, because those dynasties have been romanticized because it's wonderful poetry and the poet lifestyle. But I think after that, China went into a very strange moment after Tang or Song Dynasty, which, is, which was 1300 years ago. And after that, the middle, middle century was very interesting because about foreign invading and China became the the later China become the weaker China. And I think that was the reason leads China has this kind of crazy, the last 100 years history, you know, including the communism revolution, how the weak China been reformed for the last 100 years. And I think those time wasn't being properly introduced. And I would like to do that. It's, it's strange, I know that uh, in the case of the Japanese writer Murakami, that his work is translated from Japanese into English that they use the English translation to make the German translation, and they use the German translation to make the Turkish translation. So, I mean, it could be completely different by the time you get to Turkey with it. One of the other events which I was at at the book festival earlier in the week was um, the writer Yi Yun Li, who only writes in, in English, who was giving the Scottish Pen lecture, and she said a, a rather surprising thing, that, um, that there was very little censorship in China nowadays. She said, if you're writing, if you're Chinese and writing in Chinese, as long as you weren't criticizing the party, you pretty much had a free scope to write about any topic or in any style. Was, has that been your experience of? Um, it, sounds, it sounds to me a, a kind of self-censorship to me. Yeah. And uh, I think in my experience is always, um, I think it's always a, 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 a great difficulty of fighting and a great difficulty of how to play the game and to carry on to survive as a writer, as an artist. Because first of all, if you know that the massive censorship around your life, and I think that's very obvious. So what's the rest is, if you dedicate to your dream as a writer or, or intellectual or whatever, 
you somehow need to find you find as a way to cope with or or play the, the game or play the codes and i think most people think censorship is very damaging or a scary subject to talk about but i think censorship is everywhere everywhere in the in the east and in the west um recently i think apart from political censorship i think in the west there's strong commercial censorship as well um, very much yeah. and i think the industry market is another form of censorship on, on serious literature work. And I, I think this, those things has to be acknowledged by both sides, East and West. And I, I think so far, I think Americans start to acknowledge yeah, they have terrible censorship as well, um, which is, I think it was too late to say that. Anyway, and I, I was saying, because people normally think the censorship is very damaging for, for the artists from Eastern Bloc, but on the other hand, like one of the most greatest novels by, um, by the Soviet writer, uh, Marston Margarita, it was written in such, such a tight yeah. environment. And also I think if you talk about Iranian cinema, there's the films from Abbas yeah. Kiristami, and Iranian cinema was wonderful, I think because I think artists somehow found a way or metaphysical way find the symbols to, to deliver their message. Um, what's the point is how to find the artistic approach to reshape the vision or try to shape your original vision, but through a metaphysical journey to, towards your work. Um, because that's always uh, the case. And I think in, in the West, I felt the same. There's a commercial censorship was so strong. You, you got to find a way to, to play those games in order to be her, he, hear or heard your voice. Otherwise, your voice is being drowned. It, it is astonishing that you know, Shakespeare existed in a time of huge censorship. Um, if he was writing today, I don't really rate his chances of getting a play on the stage, given that it's not a musical or mm. you know, it's, it, that, that commercial censorship is, is very genuine. I think you're quite right to point out that there is, a sort of, there is no moral superiority for the West to complain about Chinese censorship or indeed any of the Eastern countries. Should we take some questions from the floor? Yes. Can we have the house lights up, please? Now, there should be a roving mic going around, so if you would wait until that gets there. There's somebody just at the back, right there. Thanks very much for your reading. I was wondering, you said you come from South China, what your first language was, and did you have to learn Mandarin? Was Mandarin your second language? Mm. And I was interested in that, and your first writing, which was probably thinking in your own language. Mm. That's interesting. Um, my province is called the Zhejiang province, which is just above Fujian province and very close to Taiwan. So you can call that dialect, but we don't say <coughs> dialect in Chinese concept. We, we, we just say um, and just the, the language from our province is our province language. So. Mandarin is completely another thing. Um, and when I went to school, I really need to learn Mandarin, which is Beijingese language, based on Beijing Northern language. And I wrote an essay when I was a teenager, when I went to the art school in Beijing, I found a profound loss, or, or identity lost, because the way I, I tried to imitate the Mandarin speaker, you know, and I tried to somehow rewrite my essay in a more Mandarin style, or more Beijingese style. And I wrote an essay about people who lost the mother tongue. And that was, I, I remember I wrote, when I was 17, I, when I left the South province to Beijing, because I couldn't really write poetry in my province style, and I have to really adjust in order to not to show the peasant motherland where I came from. Um, and I think those moments I found language is really violent, because language is identity violence, is in order in order to somehow to abolish another minor, minor language or minor identity you came from. So I mean, indeed, I, I, <coughs> I write in Chinese and in English, and I speak more than two languages. But, but it's, always, it's always a fight, um, an identity question. Not, not, not necessarily um, a problem, but it's an intellectual obsession or intellectual activity to speak different language because you know you're completely presenting different point of view. And I think that's become even more and more clear when I'm writing 
sometimes in Chinese, sometimes in English now, this is really shows. Um, and I think my feelings as a good, if you want to be a good author, you need to find the intersection or the meeting point between two languages or say between two identities rather than fight and, and, then, and then let yourself down or lost your own voice. But that's really difficult to, to, to chase, I think. Uh, some more questions? Just right down the front here. You sound so international. Which country do you spend most time in now? Oh, <coughs> um, I'm Chinese. I'm not international at all. <laughs> I just kind of steal a little bit of foreign language, but, but I'm Chinese. Yeah. And you're traveling to Italy for, for film work now as well. Yeah, I, tr I traveled a lot because, uh, because of crazy filmmaker's life I'm leading to. Um, because of most of my films are documentary based. So I think that the difference of documentary fiction is sometimes you, you have to go to the, the place and meeting all these people, whether in, in America or France or China or, or t Tibet, to, to respect who they are and to, to somehow observe them. And I think that's the benefit of, of my life as a writer, because I found that I really learned from filmmaking. Can I ask you question? Just briefly, yeah. Mm, yes, very briefly. You, you say you went to Tibet. Was this a, 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 an extension of your documentary films? And did you find it difficult being Chinese working in Tibet? Oh, I know you're going to get excited of that. <laughs> 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 it's nothing really exciting, anyway, for me. It's another, it's another land, another place with its own culture. As American, for me, it's completely another land. I think it's just over kind of publicized. Anyway. Some more questions? Um, are your films in, uh, are, is it possible to screen your films in China or your books, are your books uh, published in China? Because I was a little bit intrigued by your remarks on censorship. Uh, so it's really all the same, but uh, in the West there's commercial censorship, and in, a way, and in China you have uh, the party censorship, uh, because I think in China you have both. You have a commercial system, which is, of course, uh, exercising a kind of censorship, and a party censorship on top. So. Um, I'm a little bit intrigued about your remark. Mm. Mm. Are you from Germany? Yes. <laughs> um, well, my actually my my books, my novels, they they all fine in China because all these books was published in Chinese before, and they were just translation. But it's really later translation before I started writing English. Um, but I didn't when I was in China. I didn't really directing films because I was kind of young academic person very lazy about production and also fearful of the, the commercial you know financing process of making film and I was completely fearful and frightened to try to raise money to make film so all I ended up was being a lazy intellectual writing books at home without doing any physical thing um, and the, in a way that was a lucky time I didn't really making film because if I made it they would never be shown anyway and I may as well I think, remain my true energy without being self-censored again. Um, but now, because I, when, when I left China, I started directing films, I guess, because I hear myself more when, you, when you're away from your native country. You hear your voice much more, and as a voice becomes so determined, and a lot of ideas much, much clearer than I was in Beijing for some reason. So I, I wrote all these ideas I want to do the film, and I made all these films, oh, I went back to China. And then I tried to do editing in Europe or in France mainly. Because I think editing is like writing. You need to be away from your native language. And those films, some of my films been bought by China for, but most of films not really showed in China, but, but, but being distributed in France with a French distributor. And uh, I, think, I think there's one in German as well. But I guess slowly, because my, my films are not really that kind of hardcore, this kind of Western pleased stuff, not at all. So they have no market here. This is a question just here, and we'll come to you afterwards. 
Thank you. You said that it was important to be true to your voice, um, even though you're writing in different languages. I'm just curious, does writing in more than one language allow you to have more than one voice? And do you find it somehow liberating that writing in English, for example, you can actually discover a, a different voice and be a bit schizophrenic? Yes, I do agree. I do agree. But that's, I think that that's not um, consciously, you know, I think it's, it's a really interesting psychology and the, and the physical and the emotion process to write in different language. Um, but in my case, I think, um, because all my writing is very personal experience based. Um, so, so because I never analyze my work, so my, my work is a kind of first degree uh, subconscious, completely sub subconscious expression of, of daily life. So there's never been a kind of um, academic analyzing of what should I write or how should I write. Um, so for example, although I started writing English for the Consensus Chinese English Dictionary for Lovers, but that was very, it was so much a childish playing around with language because when I arrived in this country, <coughs> I spoke all this very broken English or Chinese English and people laugh a lot. But I was really noting down all the English I wrote, I, I, I spoke in order to make a better English. And I, one day I look at those notes I made and I thought that's already a story, it's a novel. So in a way I wasn't really intellectually constructing something. But of course, it was, it was intellectual, mental activity anyway, but it was more um, emotional processes. It's naturally, I want, to, I want to speak. I want to speak as a normal person in this country. But then those texts has this kind of very interesting kind of psychological background. And there's a cultural difference showed in the text. So by saying this, I said that if, if the book was successful or is successful, it's beyond my, uh, my expectation, really. Um, I was really afraid, um, I think before the publication, I, I was, the, the book was refused um, by the publisher. And I think most people think, you're crazy. Why English want to, to read such a bad English writing book, but with some kind of cultural difficulties? Um, and I was really worried that no one really going to read this book. But in fact, this book is really doing very well. And I was like, hmm, it's strange. Oh. Something just there. Um, I was just wondering, with the Chinese-English Concise Dictionary for lovers, it's very easy to get swept up with the character. And the love that she feels is so intense that I was wondering if um, that's been based on personal experience or there was something that inspired you in particular when writing the book. Tonight already it's a better situation because every book event I went, the first question automatically is, uh, is it all your book autobiography? So I have to make a different mythology of my life in order to not bore myself. But anyway, this is a better question. Um, it's a different version. Um, <laughs> of course, as I said, I think when you're not too old yet, you, you somehow you're obsessed by, by what you physically experienced in your life. And I think most writers start from writing their first book based on their family experience or their teenage experience. Oh, very significant, for example, I think the B generation or, or Jody Salinger, those generation. But, but even histori historians write about his life um, in different way. Um, so yes. Um, but no, as well, because I think if you're a storyteller, it's not good enough just to rec record your diary. Um, a diary has no shape if there's no construction um, beyond the diary level. And I think the most famous case is, um, for me, is, is a book, Henry and June, the diary written by Annis <laughs> Annis Ning. And I think Annis Ning was she was always a diary writer, which meaning to fictionalize the daily life between her word and as a word around her, which is a completely different word. Um, and I think Henry and June or Annie Ning's diary was so successful because he tr she treated diary as, as fiction. And I think it's obsession of human really fascinated by story and as a way of telling a story. 
rather than documenting life. And I don't believe the great literature documenting life. And I think that's a first degree writing, and I detest that, really. Oh, there's some, yes, there's another question just there. I was just wondering, how do you think your style of filmmaking and your style of writing compare and contrast with each other? Or just not, or like how kind of the way you f make films and the way you write, does it influence each other? Have you found like the more films you make? Is there a synergy between your... It's like you have two lovers and you don't have husband. <laughs> <laughs> or like... The <laughs> Like the way you see things when you film and the way you see things when you write, are they similar? I don't know if that makes sense. Um, I used to try to avoid kind of a novel too much visualized or has, has, has kind of very detailed pictures of landscape. I, I used to do that. And I used to try to stop my film being too intellectual based on the text or words. But then I couldn't really control this because they, they just bone in one person. So I see my film with always with really busy voiceover, very kind of abstract voiceover. And then my book somehow really, really kind of like visual montage, which I think for some kind of old fashioned, old fashioned publisher would think that's not literature, but sorry. And that's what I'm doing. Um, and that's it is. I think we can squeeze in one final question. There's somebody at the back there. Um, Jalu, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that you are a, a novelist, but at the same time a filmmaker. But the films that interest you, or the films that you make, are documentaries. Why are they documentaries and not works of fiction or imagination? Mm. I'm sure there's a reason for this. I'd love to hear what it is. Um, actually, I wouldn't call documentaries, but but you know, in a film festival, they are so catalogued. So you know, there's competition. Documentary film in the com documentary film competition, the fiction film in the fiction competition, and there's an experimental film, which in the, is the worst concept, meaning you are a silly filmmaker. <laughs> and my film is really experimental documentary and fiction as well. But I think, I think the way I see the word, I really don't like the word drama or comedy film. I thought that's the worst insulting you can have for call your film drama or comedy, because that's really already scheme make your work skinny. Um, so I just, I refuse to be really tried, you know, refuse to be catalogued, but the, the, the festival needs to catalog you anyway, and the sales distributor has to catalog you in order to put on the shelf. And it's really difficult, but I respect the truth in the cinema, although I think I detest the, the, the kind of first degree truth, you know, what, what is said has to be recorded, and that's the truth, and I think everything's a lie. And it's only truth is also's approach, or also's eyes. Um, and also, so this is the one particular reason I like to make film based on the real people, rather than use actors and a silly setting. I really hate that. Um, and the second reason is because I came from the Chinese society, which very, very province and village based, and I went to the biggest city in China. And I, I learned my life and I learned my in intelligence there. And I, it was, it, it was really strong conflict in my own life to see this both sides, the industrial city life, which invading the individual, the individuals are peasants from really poor province. And I see these two lives really conflicting each other in front of my eyes. And I think the documentary film are stronger to be, to be made, somehow stronger to record that conflict than <laughs> use actors to presenting this process. Um, because I think that was somehow an unnecessary kind of twist, uh, which lost in, in art form tran transmission. So I think, I mean, now actually I'm, I'm making more fiction now, but uh, I just want to use real people, like use real farmer or real peasants to, to presenting their own, own voice, really, because the face, those faces are disappearing. And an actor cannot um, copy those faces. And it's, in, it's intele intellectualized, those faces is a mistake, I think. But also that applies to the writing as well. Um, and I think I just want to write good books with mistakes. And I really don't want to write a smooth, mediocre, good book. I, I wouldn't do that, really. I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, 
It's been an absolutely fabulous hour. I would recommend that you do buy 20 Fragments of a Ravenous Youth. It's an astonishing work. It's experimental, it's dangerous, it's edgy. <laughs> it's all the things that I you know, admire so much in, in writing generally. Thanks. Please, if you could let us just get out before you all throng out. I'll be taking Shailu over to the signing tent where she'll be signing, which is in the bookshop, I think. And I'm sure you'll want to join me in thanking Shailu Gu.